continue. So now let's move on to analysis modeling. Now, here is one view of what analysis modeling is all about. It's about bridging the system distribution between the can you hear me? It's dead. All right, I'll talk into this microphone. Okay, so it's a bridge between the requirements and the actual design, the technical implementation of the system that we're building. So that is the analysis model. That is when we try to model the things uh, that exist in the users, the client's domain. So here is uh, a picture from the book. Uh, this is one of the pictures that it's a good idea for you to really look at in the book. Uh, it tries to show you uh, the relationship between the analysis models that we develop and the actual design uh, of the software. So, as I mentioned here previously, uh, the analysis model, we have scenario-based elements, uh, we have uh, class elements or class-based elements, we have flow-oriented elements, and we have behavioral elements that we develop when we do the analysis model. And these then will all affect uh, the... Ah, now I can move around again. Ah. <laughs> these all affect the various uh, aspects of the actual system design. And you can see here uh, that they affect various ways the data, the class design of our system, the actual final object diagrams, if you wish, the architectural design, the interface design, and the low-level component design. So if anyone knows something about the left part, you can also, in, in, in these boxes that are as close to unreadable, to get them, might be able to see, <laughs> probably not, what kind of elements would be included in these models. Uh, let me see if I may open them. The scenario-based elements, the ones that we typically uh, start with, they, they would be the use cases, uh, the use case diagrams, and accompanying text that actually explains the use cases. So have something called activity diagrams and explain diagrams that I'll show you uh, in just a few minutes. Uh, then we will have class-based uh, elements. Typically, they would be uh, initial iterations of an object diagram or an object set of object diagrams. If we use UML, they would be object diagrams. Uh, they, we might use something called CRC parts, which you might be... Are you familiar with CRC parts from your... Uh, you will know what it is, you will probably. Uh, how do you develop class diagrams? Have you un underlined the nouns, whatever? Yeah. Okay, that's one. Okay, but then you, you will, would end up with some kind of initial object diagram. You would have behavioral elements, typically state charts or, or state diagrams, that show the state and the events that trigger state transitions. And you, you, you might also have lower integrity uh, showing the data flow in the system. 
This is another important picture. Uh, this picture has been one of the enhanced directions. Pictures are included by lectures like that one among the many pictures in your group that are really quite So, again, in this picture, the details aren't very important, but the concept here is very important. So, let's take a look at the, this picture tries to explain uh, the, the, the idea between uh, analysis and design models. So you can see uh, on the left we have the y-axis, this is an abstraction. So the analysis models tend to be at the high level of abstraction, whereas the design models tend to be at the low, lower level of abstraction. On the x-axis you can see that we have various parts or descriptions of the systems. Of the system that we're building, we have architectural elements that describe the system architecture. We have interface elements that describe the interface of the system. We have component level elements that describe the different components of a software system. And we have deployment level elements that describe how the system gets deployed, installed, shipped, whatever, upgraded, whatever. Uh, and elements should be included in the and in the design models. And what happens is that when we do requirements like engineering and analysis modeling, we think about these at a high level of abstraction, and then as we go towards implementation and in the design models, we model these at lower level abstractions that is in more detail. And uh, an important point here is that so dotted line that there, tries to say that, that there is some kind of line between a model is an analysis model and a design model. But the border actually there can be quite unclear. So if we look at the very early analysis model, it would look very different from the same model that from this from for example a very early object diagram compared to the implementation final detailed object diagram. But then when we work from analysis towards design, uh, the borderline between when we can actually say it's a design model and analysis model is fuzzy. So, so at a conceptual level, it's, it's clear in the sense that analysis models typically contain only elements that find some problems. And so, uh, so implementation details. But as we go towards design, uh, the border is that. It's a bit unclear. So here we can see in the picture some examples. So what we, if we look, for example, at the architecture of elements, um, what kind of analysis models we might develop? We might have class diagrams, analysis packages, CRC models that help us do the class diagrams, data flow diagrams, control flow diagrams, uh, and so on. And then when we go to uh, lower levels of abstraction. The design, then we would have the data structures design, collaboration diagrams between the classes. This is already debatable whether we get those already at the analysis stage. And then at the low level of abstraction, you have uh, refinements to the uh, architectural elements. Again, if we look at interface elements, we would have use cases for the typical start, very, very high level of abstraction. Whereas uh, at the lower level of abstractions, we have the API defined at the actual graphical user interface, for example. 
So, uh, and also one thing you can take away from these features is that when we develop and design, analyze and design software, there's a wealth of different models and design plans we can develop. So we have we have no lack of modeling language or ways you can follow up from many of you at least also are familiar with you. And there are other languages. So it's a variety of various modeling methods that can use. And again, this is placing which you really need to think. If you follow the rational unified process, UML, you get a set of things. But you always need to remember what we talked about. Which are the models really need? that are really helpful from the point of view of getting our system well designed. Yes. In many cases, uh, it's not a good idea to develop all the They might not help. So you need to think about in your particular context, in your particular system project, which are the models that uh, are useful, that really help you design and understand. Okay. So what are the rules of thumb that we should think about when we do analysis model? We should focus on things that are visible within the client, customer, here it's the problem or business domain. And we should work at a high level of abstraction. Basically at a level of abstraction that doesn't include implementation, but includes concepts that the clients and users can understand and that are relevant to them. Uh, and each element, everything that we model should aim add to the overall understanding and help us better understand the system. The information domain, that is the data. Uh, the, the functional domain, that is what it should do, and the behavior of how it behaves uh, uh, with respect to certain effects. If we don't have to, to uh, not uh, make decisions related to infrastructure or non-functional models here, uh, we should minimize coupling throughout the system that is trying to develop things uh, that are as separate modules or subsystems as possible. We should keep the models as simple as possible, then they typically help provide value. So, keep it simple, don't model things that are necessary. And then we should do something that is called stepwise refinement. Anyone know? Uh, can't explain what step by 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 Stepwise. In stepwise refinement, it means that the next thing we do is take one of these boxes, and then we start opening it up. It up. So then we say, within the server, we have a set of subsystems that has, has some relationship other. And then, again, it would be one step of refinement. The next stepwise refinement would be that let's take this box and open it up and see what it can see. And so on. So that is just what we find. This is something we do in all modeling. You are all familiar. You've probably done step 
Again, if you do class diagrams, you would first start start drawing a few classes, and you would go into detail. So, what should this class do? What other ones? Uh, so, that is kept classified. This is something we do naturally. And it's also very important that also we are then able to see the fun and we get by description at different levels of abstraction. So we start with a very, very high level of abstraction and work towards lower levels of abstraction. And the lowest levels of abstraction then would be our design models. Okay. So what are the things we model? We should model data. And that is called data model. That is when we start to think about what is the data the things that we need to process that is relevant from the uh, client or customer point of uh, customer's user's point of view. We focus on the data and create the model at the customer's level of attraction. So we might have, let's say, in healthcare, we might have something for the patient. You know, we need to store some information about the patient. And then we would start working with what is the data related to the patients that we need to And we must have treatments, whatever. So we would go through the things that we have uh, in the science domain data that we need to process in our system and model that. Uh, most of you should have taken the database course, so you know you know your implementation, which is one way we can model. Then we will go into uh, functions. So ER is one way, and if you do class diagrams, they would actually uh, depict both behavioral aspects and data. Using use cases, we get at what the users actually need to do with the system. So we describe scenarios that describe spread of use, something that people need to do with the system. And then we have actors that represent either people, users, or devices that are outside the system. And how do we develop use cases? We ask very simple questions. What are the main tasks or functions that somebody, people, person we are interviewing, the user we are talking to, needs to do with the system? What are the main tasks or functions? And here's a good idea to start by asking, what do you do often? What do you do the most? And I work from the most uh, what and, and then you go deeper. What system information will the actor acquire, producer, change? What is the information, the, the relationship between the use case and the data in the system? What kind of interaction does the uh, user need to have with the system? Will, will the user need to do something when something happens in the external environment? What information does the actor need from the system? And uh, does the actor, the user, need uh, uh, information about unexpected changes and so on when interacting with the system? And again, uh, another example of a use case diagram. Uh, here we have. The homeowner again who has three things, three scenarios to access camera surveillance via the internet. 
The computer, the safe system parameter sensor set an alarm. So here's just a simple example of a use case there. Okay. Then when we go into more detail about the use case, uh, we would first list the use cases, then we would go into more detail about uh, the system. And here's an example of how we can do that by drawing something. An activity diagram that depicts the flow in a use case. So here you can see, or maybe not, <laughs> from the top, I'll read it for you. Uh, we first have here enter your password and user ID. If it's uh, a valid a password, we go to the left here, select major function, select surveillance, and so on. So it just shows the flow uh, at a very, very, again, simple level from the user's point of view. What happens if I enter the right ID? What can I do then? If I enter the wrong ID, what happens? So I get a flow uh, through the use case. That depicts the use case in more detail. In a, in a way that, the, I, that we can communicate with uh, the user. Uh, from the point of view of this course, uh, you are not required to be able to draw a diagram. So I will not ask you to draw any kind of diagram. You are, however, uh, required to understand the diagrams and know uh, what they are. But you are not required to draw diagrams in uh, this course. You can do that in later courses. We can also do a swim lane diagram. A swim lane diagram actually can be converted into an activity diagram, but it shows uh, uh, what part of the activities that happens are performed by, by which role, if you wish. So we have a code owner lane here to the left. We have a camera lane in the middle, and we have an interface lane to the right. And then time flows again from the top down, and now we have basically the same activities, but you can see what is done by the home owner, and what is done by the camera, and what is done by the system. So it's another way of drawing uh, things that flow through uh, the use case. These are very simple to, to, to read and actually quite simple to draw in both cases. So these diagrams are useful in the sense that they enable us to, at a more specific level, go through a use case with the user and explain graphically how we have understood it. And since they are very simple visualizations, those users are able intuitively to understand it. So they help us communicate uh, uh, about how the system, what the system should do and how it should work with the users. DSPs, data flow diagrams, but can be very useful. Uh, this is something that freshmen in our book includes uh, here. It might be very, very well included in a separate lecture or a separate separate story on, on old, old approaches that are uh, have been developed prior to object-oriented modeling. But you uh, still can have a good view of what happens to the data in the system by doing DFE. So even though you are using UML or whatever, it might be useful to develop DFPs, though they aren't included in that. But it, they are very, very simple. We have data sources uh, and data things. That is something that produce data or consume data. They are here shown as boxes. And then we have processes that are shown as circles that process the data. So here's an extremely simple example of a DFP. We have a user uh, and a video source. 
and a digital video processor that processes the video signal. The user sends a processing request. We have a video signal that gets sent out to the So in this, we just show the data sources, who produces the data, who processes the data, and what happens to the processing. That's the data flow type. It shows the flow of data. Now, this can be very useful uh, when we work with requirements and with understanding, for example, processes that we use to that are different issues. But then we can start asking questions to give the data to be used for modeling of also processes that are outside the computer. Uh, a doctor gives information to a nurse who enters it somewhere who does something and so on. We can model, use this to model also uh, business or domain processes that we find with the customers. You will find more examples and explanations of the DFDs in your book. Uh, so please to read uh, through them as well. It's a very simple but quite uh, uh, powerful notation. Uh, this also, DFDs also are developed at several levels of abstraction, so then we can uh, use stepwise refinement. typically develop DFDs at several levels of abstraction uh, every time blowing up, uh, going into more detail into a certain process. And then there are form formal requirements that the lower levels need to be what's called level and so on, but we'll save those for later. Something that most of you should be familiar with, so classic. That is what you do when you develop object or uh, we start to draw a class diagram. And we start by identifying analysis classes by examining the problem. Many of you have already done uh, exercises in which you use so called grammatical parts. You underline the nouns for various statements and uh, develop uh, uh, a list of potential classes. Then you try to identify attributes of each class. And then you identify the operations from that. So, now tell me, from your real world experience, how do you develop that diagram? How do you do it? I know many of you develop software in the real world, so how do you develop this diagram? Do you in your company start with underlining nouns? How do you do? I'm sure. Just a correct answer. What's your experience? No. 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 So you start by thinking. Thank you. That was the answer I was waiting for. That is the only thing I've seen people do in practice. I've never seen anyone using any of the methods that we try to teach you. So that's why I, I, I wanted that answer. 
We have another man using cubic each jungle out because for people who haven't done something like that, it can be a good way of getting started. But I've never seen of it underlying now for They would probably think I'm silly. Okay. Uh, there is another method that we are going to talk about soon that is called TRC cards. Uh, that is another method I've never seen. Right. But it's explaining your group, so at least you need to know what TRC cards is, so you can, you know, look smart if people ask you, do you know anything about something? TRC But what, we, what actually happens is that, that based upon the understanding that you get by reading the requirements if you have going through the use cases and so on, uh, people typically in group teachers and you start developing object diagrams and what might what you think of that. Uh, I've never seen this you know, for underlying analysis. Which isn't to say that it couldn't be done. Uh, I'm not able to say that you shouldn't do it, but I've never seen it. So uh, I was just curious if anyone of you has that. Done. That would also be good. Oh, how disappointing. All this teaching for nothing. Okay. So let's look about now uh, what the idea with analysis class. Now analysis classes what think what what kind we try to what might end up as analysis classes. And these are things that can actually despite using or not using CRC files or or underline things that end up often as analysis classes based upon intuition or understanding are, for example, external entities, other systems, devices, people, uh, that the producer for tune information, something that is related externally to our system. We might need to model that at the, uh, at the analysis stage. Uh, very often we have the things, like reports, displays, letters, signals, whatever, that are part of the information, the information that we need to deal with in the system, the object in the real world. That is why uh, we get very close to the knot. They, they are the knot uh, that we find in. They can be occurrences or events. Now, uh, that, that occurs, so we start with the system. They can be roles, or the things that we find in the organization, department, role, manager, whatever, say by people who interact with the system, organizational units, as I said here, that are relevant, can be basic. And they can be structures. But often these are things that you intuitively understand and feel understanding. So uh, doing the object diagram is one way of actually modeling uh, the real world domain. And you all should know what class diagrams look like. Yeah, they but we have a class name. That is the one we often start with. Then we have the attributes, the data that the class needs to uh, deal with, and we have the operations, the methods that uh, actually And now CRC modeling. The highlight of the data. CRC uh, modeling uh, is a method for modeling uh, uh, class for helping you to think about and develop class diagrams. 
ERC stands for Class Responsibility Collaboration. So we first, uh, and start with the idea that an analysis class has some responsibilities, and the responsibilities is storing the data and having operations that deal with it. And then the other idea is collaborate with each other, so that means that the analysis class has some relationships between the others. So collaborators then are those classes that are required to provide here a class with the information needs to uh, complete the responsibility. So in general, the collaboration then is a request for information or request for some, some action. So uh, some relationship between the classes. And if you look at this, uh, this is an example of a CRC class. Uh, it looks very similar what you find in an object class. You have a class name, floor plan, for example, here. You might have a description. Then you have responsibility, uh, which here actually merges both the attributes and the methods. So it says, what should this class do? And then it has a separate column, uh, which it says, uh, collaborate. Which other classes uh, that is collaborate? So then we have, for example, here, shows position of video camera that relates to a camera class. Now this is where uh, I personally always think about, well, why should I write this on a separate card? Why would it be actually saying I have, uh, let's say here, class floor plan? What is the benefit of having a DRC card when I can just quickly draw the camera class here and draw a line? So why would this be a benefit? This is a question that I haven't been able to answer myself, but uh, I do hope that I someday will understand But here you can see a CRC card. So now you know what a CRC is. My recommendation is use it if you don't use it, I don't care. The important thing is that you end up with object diagrams that are a good description of the analysis domain that you're trying to model. So this is just an intermediate way of getting to those object diagrams and an intermediate way uh, to benefit on that computer. Okay. Uh, we, these are things you should know. How you should know aggregates, you should know inheritance and so on from your earlier courses and multiplicity, so we won't go into that. If you are unfamiliar with the concept of inheritance and multiplicity and so on, uh, please read your Okay, so then we have class models, data flow models, use case models. Now the third modeling uh, that we are, that we do in analysis modeling is behavioral modeling. Behavioral modeling at the high level of abstraction, saying how will our software system respond to external events or something that happens. And the things, the steps we can use to develop the behavior. We try to evaluate the use cases to understand the sequence, the interactions between the users and the system. We try to identify the events that somehow uh, relate to uh, the interaction sequence. Then we can create sequences for each use case and build state diagrams for the system. Uh, you should also know what a state diagram is. How about state charts? I think state charts. How many 
And then we go into the control panel with the feed state. And this state changes. And the uh, events that get transferred between the different actors uh, in our sequence diagram. Well, how do we do this? In a remote. Typically, again, uh, user intuition or understanding of that the users, we start by making a list of the different states. So we start by drawing the models and naming the different states, and then we start thinking about the transition. How does the system make a transition from one state to another? Then we indicate, start to list the events and the actions, and then we draw the state diagram. The one can be uh, converted to the other. So, and that is what we will finish today. Before uh, so time modeling and software work. Any questions, comments at this point, or do you just feel hungry? Okay. Enjoy your lunch. See you all tomorrow. <laughs>